Gospel number 11 this afternoon. So we've um, uh, we we left off looking at the church and the uh, the fact that the church's head is Christ and the church um, body governs itself. Um, and then number 11 is referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Christ administered by the church. Um, ordinances of Christ administered by the church. So um, the fact that they're ordinance of Christ just simply means this is what Christ has told us to do. Uh, these are things that were laid out um, uh, not only modeled, but instructed, uh, given to us by Him. So in Acts chapter uh, 2, in Acts chapter 2, this is Peter preaching here at Pentecost, and in verse 38, it says, then Peter said unto them, uh, when they asked, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, be baptized and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Uh, again, this is an ordinance that we do in the name of Christ. We also do it according to the Great Commission in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this was um, instituted, taught by Christ. Teach, and then after you've evangelized and someone's made a profession of faith, baptize, and then disciple. So it's, a, it's an act of obedience, something that Christ has given us, an avenue whereby we identify ourselves with Him. So baptism is an ordinance that He's given us. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that He's given us. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. In verse 26, Matthew 26, 26 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of of sins. And so Christ has the uh, the first Lord's Supper here. It's uh, really the celebration of the Passover, but he he adds the significance, the new covenant significance as he's as he's having this meal with with his disciples and he says this bread is my body that's broken for you. This cup is the new testament or the new covenant in my blood and and then of course if we look at other passages, we see that this is a memorial of that. This is a, a, a figure or a symbol of that. But then we go back to, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we were there several times this morning, that 
these things were given by Christ. So whenever we say that, I, really the opposite of that, of what we're trying to clarify is the church itself didn't come up with this. We didn't just decide this would be a good thing for the church to do. Jesus came up with this. But then in the Great Commission, Jesus gave it to the church to administer. So go, evangelize, baptize, disciple, and then whenever we see that this is being carried out in Acts, look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And so they, they received the word. They were baptized. The text says that there was added to them 3,000 souls. Um, just in case we're wondering who the them was, in verse 47, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so these things were happening within the context um, of the church. They were um, received into the um What's the word here? Uh, there were added to them. There were received into that number 3,000 in a day. But again, we're talking about the church that's administering these things. It's, uh, uh, it's not disconnected from that. So, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, they're ordinance of, ordinances of Christ. So the question, where did we come up with that? Well, we didn't. Jesus did and then administered by the church. How is this supposed to take place? How do we, how do we um, administer baptism and the Lord's Supper? Is it, uh, is it a valid thing for, um, uh, for me to um, decide on a beach trip to baptize one of my kids and then bring it in and, and inform the church they were baptized and let's have a handshake? Um, the answer is no, that's not a valid thing. Is it a valid thing for me to decide that if I invite you over for supper, we'll just go ahead and have the Lord's Supper while we're at it? Uh, no, that's not a valid thing. And, and, and when I say that, I don't say that um, because we're trying to be as exclusive or whatever as possible. These are not individual ordinances. These are church ordinances. And so they're... There are times you see in Scripture like where the Ethiopian eunuch is, uh, is reading and then Philip is sent and sees him and explains what's going on and, and he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch and, and then he goes back to Ethiopia. And that's a, it was valid. Um, and so sometimes the question is, well, what about those kinds of things? And there are instances where that's the case, but, but I will say this, that in the context in which we live, where there's 10 churches on every block, 
why would we do this outside of the context of the local church? Okay, it makes zero sense and it certainly doesn't align with Scripture. So, um, as we are, uh, for more than one reason, number one, before um, anyone is baptized, their, uh, their testimony should be heard by and endorsed by uh, a body of believers and then uh, as a valid testimony. And then as we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, again, we're celebrating not a potential reality, but an actual reality. And what I mean by that is we potentially have fellowship and can have fellowship with anyone who's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But we don't have actual fellowship and we haven't actually committed ourselves to the close one another type of fellowship that we have with the body that's that's here. So the Lord's Supper, we're painting a picture of a reality and uh, we want to. You know, make sure that what we're what we're doing is really pain is really accurate to the reality that we're celebrating. It's not potential; it's actual. So that if we decided that we were going to exclude someone, okay, that's not a statement to say we think this person's going to hell. That's a statement to say you've chosen not to walk in fellowship with Christ and in fellowship with us right now, and so we're not going to pretend like you are. Now, if they continue in that state, then, you know, the, the conclusion or the discernment might be what we said previous. But, but it's not a, a statement of this is where we think eternally your soul is. It's this is where you are right now. And after many attempts, you've refused to turn. And so we are no longer going to pretend like you're in fellowship with Christ and us. We've got to act on that. All right. And then the last article is... Um, there's several things that are um, that are brought up in that, and I think mainly this last article was was meant to emphasize evangelism. So uh, the church should evangelize, and only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. Now, any time, and I was talking about this with Brother Robert in between, and this got brought up, but. Anytime we look at articles of faith or a confession of faith, there's going to be elements of that in which the writers are trying to speak relevantly to things that are happening at that time. So back in the 70s, it was a rare primitive Baptist church that was active doing any sort of evangelism. And so Brother Mike and Brother Wallace, I think, are really trying to push back against that in this last article, saying that the church should be evangelizing. And again, only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. So um, that goes back to just the importance of a regenerate church membership. So we've again come back to Matthew 28. We've done that a good bit. As far as evangelism goes, go teach, baptize. That's something that that uh, Christ has called the church to. Uh, and I think the the uh, the point that only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized is probably pushing back against a sentimentality or a sentimental view of the church. Um, just because you have warm sentimental affections 
toward the church or aspects of the church does not make you a born again believer. It's what you do with Christ. That's the only way we can discern what's really going on. Uh, the kind of singing that we did uh, this afternoon, well, the kind of singing we always do, is enjoyable to most people. I mean, if, even if you don't know a thing about music, I said that most of the time, first time visitors, the first thing they'll say is something about how beautiful the singing was. Well, it is beautiful, but you don't have to be born again to think that. Um, there are people that uh, uh, that have come and, and they've said, you know, wow, you, you guys really are a close-knit group of people. I, I can see that you, you know, this really is, I think, what church ought to be uh, in the way that you're involved in each other's lives. Well, you can appreciate close-knit community without being born again. Um, that's, that's really something that um, all kinds of institutions are trying to um, incorporate. Um, you know, in the workforce now, it's not uncommon at all to hear um, this is your work family, or we're a family uh, sort of thing to try to cultivate a familial deal. You don't have to be born again to want to do that. The question is, has this individual come to realize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and have they placed their faith in Christ as their one and only Savior before a holy God? Okay, that's the question. Um, so 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, we preach Christ uh, to, uh, uh, to the Jew, that's a stumbling block. To the, to the Greek, that's foolish. Uh, but to us, it's the power of God. In Acts chapter 8, Okay, and this is what we were talking about earlier with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but the, the profession of faith here. Acts chapter 8, uh, 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began the same uh, Scripture and uh, preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So as he baptizes the eunuch, he says, this is, this is the issue. Do you believe on Christ? And he says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they stopped he was baptized. What I said earlier, and, and I think probably the reason why this was tagged on there, but what I said earlier about a lot of times these things are, are written or at least nuanced in a way uh, that is addressing, pushing back something against the cultural norm um, is, is something that ought to kind of key us in on the fact that we, we are constantly seeking to uh, correct, but not overcorrect. Okay? 
There's no such thing as a perfect articles of faith that holds the perfect tension across the board on every single thing. Uh, We do the best that we can with what we have, but we're constantly seeking to, to, to stay centered, to stay on the line of Scripture. And those that come after us are going to be fighting that same fight. And we want to do the best that we can uh, to help them in that. But there's always going to be things that need to be emphasized in this generation or the previous generation that a couple of generations down the road will say, why did they emphasize that? What's the big deal with that? And it's because we're in a new context, culturally, historically, or church, denominational context, anything like that. Um, So the eunuch professes faith in Christ and he's baptized. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 lets us know that baptism does not save or cleanse from any actual sin. But it is a good answer. I'm sorry, it is the answer of a good conscience before God as we publicly identify with Christ in obedience to God. So the answer of a good conscience just just simply means that we've been given this ordinance by Christ. And so as we go down into the water, as we identify with his uh, death and burial and as we identify with his resurrection, it's the answer of a good conscience. I've done all that needs to be done, not in the act of going under the water, but in the fact that I am trusting in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ to cover my sin and for my righteousness. So it's a symbol of a greater reality. And then the last point that's on the uh, Articles of Faith is that only those who are orderly church members have the right to commune at the Lord's table. And that's going to come from 1 Corinthians 5, 8 through 11, where Paul is trying to, we can turn there. Paul is emphasizing, we were there this morning. First Corinthians five, eight through eleven. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're just saying, let us keep the feast with sincerity or in a genuine way. Let it be sincere, not a it's, this is kind of where I get the, we're painting a picture and even we're, either we're celebrating an actual reality or we're just pretending some lie is true. It's, it's gotta be genuine, sincere. What, what's happening needs to be a real, uh, display of what we're celebrating. And then he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. So he's saying, I wrote you a letter not to keep company with fornicators. And Paul takes a little bit of time here to clarify. He's saying, I'm not saying the fornicators in the world. He says, I'm talking about the church right now. I'm talking about the assembly. I'm talking about those that you would observe the feast with. The world 
God's going to judge the world one day. You can't do anything about that. And you can't remove yourself from this world. If you live in it, you're going to end up rubbing shoulders with who knows. But he says in verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. No, no, N-O. Do not eat is what he's saying. Uh, and so he's, he's saying, let's keep the feast in verse 8 with sincerity and truth. Don't keep company with fornicators. I'm not talking about the ungodly out in the world, he says. I'm talking about those who are within the church who call themselves a brother or a sister in Christ. If they remain in that, do not eat. And I interpret that as being connected to the feast, which is the Lord's table. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, really what he's referring to here is the the spiritual feast that we have as we come together and enjoy one another's fellowship. Well, it's going to be kind of hard to, to, to tell someone you can't come in and do that. Um, what I mean by that is um, uh, anybody who's orthodox believes that the Lord's Supper is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Okay, So there's nothing magical happening whenever we take the bread and take the wine. Uh, It is a spiritual fellowship, a spiritual communion that we have with Christ and with one another. Uh, But to say that what we're going to do is is we're going to ban people from entering into that spiritual fellowship with us is uh, uh, you can't really enact that unless you just shun people and don't have anything to do with them. And then if you do that, you really violate the first part of the um, Great Commission. Two kinds of people in the world, unbelievers and believers. And with unbelievers, you don't ignore them, you evangelize them. And with believers, you disciple. And if someone is brought to a point to where we say, you are uh, living in a way to where we're no longer confident that you're walking in fellowship with Christ or in fellowship with us, and they're put out, they're put out with hopes that they'll be restored one day. Okay? Which means we have a job. And the job is, as we interact with that individual, is evangelistic type way. So uh, I would take 1 Corinthians 5 as being, you've got to guard the Lord's table. Don't eat or keep the feast genuine or pure or sincere. Um, So only those who are orderly church members have the right to commune at the Lord's table. Different people do this in different ways. Um, there are some who just have uh, uh, communion in such a way that they say, you know, if somebody comes in and says they're a believer, then that's A-OK with us. We'll let them commune with us. Uh, then you have what's called close, C-L-O-S-E, close communion. And that's typically been denominational lines. So for us, anybody who's a primitive Baptist, if they came in, they could take communion with us. And then you have closed that is uh, church membership only. And, and I would argue that you cannot put 1 Corinthians chapter 5 into practice if you're doing open or close communion. Um, if it's true that we're being um, 
instructed here to keep the feast sincere or genuine, then if somebody gets excluded down the road and comes here and we let them in, now I'm not saying that if they took communion with us that God's going to strike us with a bolt of lightning. I am saying there's no way for us to know whether or not we're doing what we've been called to do. Okay, so sometimes people can get, none of you that I've ever talked to, but sometimes people can get kind of sensitive about this. Um, but based on the articles of faith here, based on uh, my understanding of 1 Corinthians 5, I think every single believer ought to take communion at their church because that's where the, the greatest um, uh, reality as far as the picture that's being painted is painted in a sincere, true way. And it's a, a measure of accountability here. So that's the Articles of Faith. It's down to number 12. Um, and as I said, starting out last week, this is just an effort to try to succinctly summarize what's here, what's the substance of it, um, uh, and, and uh, what it means. So next week, I'm going to look at the church covenant. So this has been more of a doctrinal look at what we believe about things in a doctrinal way. Next week, we're going to look practically at what is it that as a church member, you have agreed to do, you have covenanted to do. And I think it's important, and I'll talk more about it next week, but the reason we have a church covenant, think about it this way, the reason we or really anybody else has a church covenant is because we have been called to a very high standard. Okay, and we are making a covenant because we know that just left to ourselves and our own whims and our own feelings about things, these things won't get done. So we've made a covenant before God and one another. And so hopefully next week will be a good renewal of that on what normal church life and normal interaction within the body uh, is supposed to be and what we've even, go a little further, what we've covenanted with one another and with God for it to be. So, anyone have any questions or anything on your uh, anything on your heart before we dismiss? Try to be as clear and succinct on those things as I could be.